Welcome to Altered Mobility, where we talk about publicly available transportation, spaces, the ways we get around and what surrounds us in the public sphere. I am your host, Cheryl Gross Glazer, and today we cover uh, a movie, but we're going way, way, way beyond this movie. It's a 1955 movie, Love is a Many Splendored Thing. And we're going to do two episodes that really look at the history of Hong Kong and public transportation there. We're really going to do a deep dive in our second episode about the subway system there, which is truly amazing. Um, but this first episode really... It paints the whole picture. So I I hope you will find it interesting. And before we talk about Love is a Many Splendored Thing and the book, which was a many splendored thing, uh, we're going to go to our moment in equity. And because we are going to be in the area of Hong Kong, we are going to talk about the Chinese Revolution, which really set the stage uh, for everything that's happened in modern Hong Kong. So the Chinese Revolution of the mid-20th century, uh, it kind of goes like this. The British official in Southeast Asia, Malcolm McDonald, described it, educated Chinese were torn during the revolution in the late 40s and into the 50s between admiring and identifying with the impulses of the revolution, you know, that whole idea of uh, turning away from a fossilized, inequitable, cruel social hierarchy. Um, And then, you know, so that's on the one hand, wanting to turn away from that, but on the other, being turned off by the misguidance of the revolution, its use of murder as a broad weapon to steamroll the population. So we have people whose lives were very much improved. Anybody who was poor uh, or women whose roles were being, you know, sort of like your role was being partly household help and partly a household sex worker. Um, But even, you know, they lacked freedom and were subject to the strict orthodoxy of the revolutionary leaders. So it wasn't like they suddenly had freedom. They just probably were in Uh, less of a bad situation unless they got in trouble in terms of free speech but that's all other story so according to uh, the writer Helen Zia in her book Last Boat Out of Shanghai the epic story of the Chinese who fled Mao's revolution which was published in 2019 during the onslaught of the revolution one quarter of Shanghai's population fled mainland China for Hong Kong, Taiwan, Southeast Asia, and the, and the U.S. And that's just looking at uh, Shanghai. Obviously, other places would differ. And Zia did an, in an NPR interview in which he said, and I quote, Those four years after the eight years of war and occupation with Japan, those weren't years of peace either. The ink on the surrender documents wasn't even dry when the civil war between the old regime, the nationalist government, and the communist army just went full bloom and full bore. And so Shanghai, the gem of China, was under complete occupation and martial law and controlled by the nationalists. That was going to be their stronghold. So the one topic 
of conversation throughout the city. This is continuing with the quote of Zia. Um, city of Shanghai was, are you staying or are you fleeing? If we stay, will we survive? If we leave, will we survive? What about our children? And that to me, that's really the tipping point of answering the question of, shall we leave or shall we stay? And that was Zia. And in the book, A Many Splendored Thing, uh, Han Su Yin, the, the author, really goes into those questions. Although it's not about Shanghai. So first and foremost, why talk about a movie or a book that's not really about public spaces or public transportation in any way? Just drinking my nice Sikh's coffee here. Well, we're going to compare Hong Kong now, a place of amazing public trans transportation with scenes in the movie. Uh, the movie, much of it filmed on location, enables us to see almost in, in a time capsule kind of way, a place, how it looked completely different in, in another, you know, now, what, 70 years ago more than seven you know about 70 years ago because this was it was filmed in the mid 50s um and you really see uh, a lot of similarities with present day hong kong but a lot of differences so before i even start talking about this very beautiful movie i i will recommend that you see the movie and read the book because they really complement each other. I, I like usually to read a book first because you don't you don't have the visuals of the movie stuck in your mind. Um, the book paints the picture of Hong Kong at this time with much more depth than the movie, particularly about the refugees who fled to Hong Kong, both poor and wealthy, and the many missionaries who escaped China as well, as about the British and the tug at the heart of those who leave, should they have remained in their homeland and have they abandoned their ancestral foundation. Um, and we also go to China in the book in a much more in-depth way um, and see those who have chosen not to become refugees, even knowing that they might lose everything and, and even their lives. Um, in the movie, uh, there, there are some scenes in China, but it's, it's very different. And we'll go into that a little bit, not, not too much. We're really focused on our main topics. So the big difference between the movie and the book is that the book ponders through its characters whether Hong Kong will fall to the communists of China and whether if invaded, the British will actually stand up to defend it. The movie, on the other hand, gives the colony of Hong Kong much more of a sense of safety, of refuge, and of British permanence. Um, though it does do a very good job of portraying the vast differences in wealth and attitude among its teeming and changing growing masses of inhabitants. Uh, what the movie gives, and which anyone younger than 70, of course, cannot remember, is a Hong Kong the way it looked in the 1950s, before Hong Kong became what I would like to say um, is Manhattan on steroids, absolutely overbuilt with skyscrapers. Not everywhere, but lots of places. So um, just like you can visit Penn Station in New York and if you know where to look and you're on a tour, you can see the remnants of what existed before. Uh, so it is with Hong Kong. 
So Love is a Many Splendored Thing was a movie released in 1955, just three years after the novel, uh, which was a bestseller. Uh, the novel is itself a fictionalized but true story set in 1949 and 1950, maybe going into 1951, I forget. She does give dates in the book about a Eurasian doctor who is played by Jennifer Jones who has an affair with a married, though separated, journalist played by the American actor William Holden in the movie, though in actuality the author's partner was an Australian war war correspondent and in the book a British journalist. And in fact, um, in... Well, we won't go into that right now. Okay, so they're both in their mid-30s. They both have serious careers that they're dedicated to. Dr. Han Su Yin is a widow. She was educated in China and London. Um, and she is the character, but she is very similar to the author. In, in I'm, I'm trying to think if there's any differences, really. Um, at a party, she meets Mark Elliott. That's his name, uh, his fictionalized name. And they are drawn to each other. She tells him that she plans to stay in Hong Kong for a year and then return for, to China. She's a busy doctor at a hospital, often treating refugees. And in the movie, we see mostly children who are, uh, who are fled often alone. Um, other times we see Su Yin treating or socializing with the British, who may be anywhere along that hierarchy, from white Christian missionaries to those with imperial-related wealth that is connected to China or embedded in the colonial bureaucracy and the wealth of Hong Kong. Uh, but many have fled uh, China after, where they had lived in very cushy circumstances. So Su Yin navigates these uh, somewhat intersecting worlds, having been educated in Britain um, and in, in real life in Europe as well. She's well connected. She knows how to have a certain... Um, demeanor, if you will, that gives credibility. She comes from money, but she's no longer wealthy. Mark lives in Singapore with his wife and family. That's kind of supposedly his home base, uh, but he's seldom there. He travels about covering war zones in Asia, and um, and he's due to locate relocate to Italy in a year. Remember that this is a time of war and revolution in China, Korea, Myanmar, or Burma, India, and of course goings on in the Middle East as well. We're in the post-World War II shakeup here. So Su Yin and Mark begin an intense relationship, not completely open to others in their Hong Kong circles, but not really hidden. Su Yin adopts a daughter in the movie, but in the book, she already has a daughter whom she has adopted. Mark also has children, but they're really not, they're not discussed individually or as uh, particularly important, I have to say, or particularly on his mind all the time. Um, and remember that the book and the movie do portray Su Yin's perspective, uh, really more than him. 
So their first date, only dinner between the friends, is on the water in Kowloon. Uh, and in the 1950s, this handsome, dashing war correspondent has a car. He picks up Su Yin at the hospital, and we see the couple eat dinner on the water. Um, with the fireworks of Chinese New Year going off in the background and, of course, the beautiful water and with greenery and not many tall buildings and certainly not the endless skyline of today with tons of tall buildings. Now, if they were going to be on Kowloon today at a restaurant, what they would see is right across um, an incredible skyline. So... Before we travel the route of our couple using public transportation, we're going to take a major detour. <laughs> so we're already going off course to explore the history of uh, Hong Kong. And then we'll return and map out that route from the hospital to Kowloon. Hong Kong has been inhabited for uh, 30,000 years, give or take, and it has been administratively part of or in a relationship with mainland China for well over 2,000 years. One could easily guess that prior to Hong Kong's urban financial powerhouse present, its population had lived off the sea, it's surrounded by the sea. With fishing, salt production, and pearl farming fueling its economy during the imperial Chinese era. In the 1830s, the British start arriving, and they're met with uh, not a densely populated set of islands and part of the mainland. Remember, if you want to think of Hong Kong in a way that's analogous to anywhere in the U.S., I would say New York, in that part of New York City is on the mainland, but it's mostly these islands. And, and the territory of Hong Kong, which includes more than Hong Kong, um, it's kind of like that. And I would say somewhat similar size, again, analogous, if you want to get a vision in your head if you've never been there. Or you've been there like me and you have really uh, very little sense of direction about Hong Kong. Okay, so the British start arriving in the 1830s. There def there's definitely under 10,000 people. And the British begin to take over in 1841. Over the next 50 years or so, so we're getting, you know, into the 1890s, uh, the, after, after there's been some wars and expansion of geographic control, the British had, by 1898, colonized all of Hong Kong and Kowloon. And this, in 1898, is when China enters into a lease with the British for 99 years. Uh, that lease was interrupted for four years during World War II when the Japanese occupied the territory. In 1997, we're at the end of the lease. And the British, as promised, they leave. And the Chinese promise, as part of their agreement with the British, not too sincerely, it turns out, to retain for 50 years the freedoms that the British, British had established with a capitalist system, tempered by what most Americans would consider as either great benefits or socialism. It's kind of a very hyper-capitalism that's been tempered, if you will. 
Um, and with freedom of association, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, and a very lively local and international press. Unfortunately, in the last few years, the Chinese government has taken away the freedoms uh, that were pre previously afforded the citizens of Hong Kong, and we will talk about that a little bit. So returning to the British imperialist period, with the British came more people. Hong Kong at that time being a British and Western outpost, there's more trade, and in the 20th century with wars um, in Asia come thousands of refugees. Um, and remember, there's the Korean War and the Communist Revolution in China. So those are just two things that are going on. Now, I'm leaving out tons of details, as you can tell, if I'm uh, talking about, you know, wars and we're hardly discussing what goes on with them or not even naming them. Uh, but we want to stay focused here. Okay. So leaving out the details, there is a missionary presence in Hong Kong and in China and the many institutions that these missionaries established. So during World War II, from the late 1941 to the Japanese surrender, about three and a half years later in 1945, the British are out, but they come back. They had defended Hong Kong for a few months in fierce combat. They didn't just walk away when the Japanese came. And the occupation uh, was said to have been uh, cruel financially and otherwise, as many in Hong Kong were murdered. So going backward, we're going to look at the population growth, but first we're going to start backward here. Uh, we have a population, as I said, of under 10,000 or about 10,000 in 1841. And by the time uh, we get to 1900, so that's 60 years later, we are in the neighborhood of 500,000. So imagine that. That is a huge and very quick increase. Imagine, though, that Hong Kong is at 600,000 at the close of World War II, and that is down 1 million from its pre-war population. So from 1900 to the late 30s, right, we have about 1.6 million, another huge and very fast increase, right? We're only talking 40 years or less. Um, and then they lose a million during... Uh, you know, before the Japanese come, there's people escaping. But by 1950, Hong Kong's population had exploded again, this time to 2.1 million due for, to the refugees fleeing uh, from China and its revo revolution. And by the 2020s, its population had grown to 7.4 million. And that may be a pre-COVID number by the way. So we're talking about over the last um, 120, 130 years, we've had explosive and very rapid growth. However, in the last three years, Hong Kong has experienced a population decrease uh, with COVID, yes, but also, and, it's, and the harsh travel restrictions that the Chinese imposed, but also the elimination of the freedoms that had made Hong Kong such a refuge uh, for Chinese and foreigners alike. So with this explosive growth, a place gets much more crowded and congested. Um, 
with large numbers of people living and moving about every day. And as those of you who pay attention to transportation with density and congestion, we often get public transportation. There's a need to unclog those roads. We will get to the history of Hong Kong's public uh, transport system later, but I will map out a couple of routes if one were to travel, as our character did, characters did, to Kowloon from 41A Conduit Road, where the hospital in the movie was located. This was actually not a hospital. It was the old Foreign Correspondence Club. Uh, but that lovely building, which is shown in the movie, was demolished in 1970, and an apartment complex was erected at that spot. So to Kowloon, to where uh, Mark and Su Yin ventured by way of water taxi, uh, assuming that I'm correct, which I may not be, about the nearest subway station, because there are a few in Kowloon, I searched for something closest to the water that would be near a view of Hong Kong, I would say you should plan on a trip of 35 to 50 minutes, depending on your mode and your route. The quickest way would be to walk 15 minutes to take the subway, known as the MTR, from the island line at Sai Ying Peng. Not to worry, everything is in English and Cantonese, not Mandarin. So it's very easy for someone from the West to travel there. Uh, go two stops to Central, which is both the neighborhood and uh, station, and walk to the Hong Kong station of the Tung Chung Line and go across to Kowloon. I would recommend, however, if you're visiting, you want to go to the scenic route, definitely take the ferry at least one way. To travel by ferry, go to Central and then walk to the ferry, which gets to Kowloon eh, about 10-15 minutes. It's not far. And yes, it takes more time because you're going to and from the ferry and all that. But in the off-season, in the middle of the day, you will have that ferry possibly totally to yourself or near near to that. I, I When I was on the ferry, I'm not sure anyone other than um, my husband and myself were on it and the, the uh, captain. <laughs> it was very quiet. Um, and you can never say that for a subway car in Hong Kong. So it's a, it's a place to get a little solitude. So um, trust me, when you're on the water in Kowloon, this area looks very different than it did in the 1950s, as you see it in the movie. We've, it's, it's as if uh, Hong Kong had shed so much of what was traditional there before. Okay. So I will give you one teaser for the second episode, which is that Hong Kong subway system, in addition to being fabulous, doesn't have to beg for public funds. It's funded in a different way, and we will get into that in our second episode. So there we go. So let's return to the movie. We're on a romantic first date. We're a nice dinner between friends. It's unclear. It is a romantic setting. Now, in the book, uh, it's a little different because there's an immediate attraction. It's it's not unclear at all from the moment they meet. But in the movie, Sun Yin is hard to read at first. And I will say that the tempo and feel of the relationship are very well played in the movie and reflect the book. Uh, 
we, we have a story of two mature people with their professional ambitions and commitments. Uh, and they're not going to drop everything for each other. They're uh, both rooted in certain ways to what they're doing. So we see Su Yin in her profi- professional setting um, And then we see her going out to lunch, and she's at a Chinese restaurant. She runs into a childhood schoolmate. And her perspective is already being altered with the presence of Mark in her life, from strict judgment of others as to how you live to hesitance. I won't go all the way to tolerance, but at least uh, a hesitance to judge. She's no longer morally pure. She's begun to live in a gray zone. And in the scene at the Chinese restaurant, we see one of Hong Kong's ladder streets. And the movie is probably showing the steps going up Aberdeen Street from Queens Road. And since transportation is not just vehicles, it's the street landscape, we are going to talk about these ladder streets, which are quite interesting. The ladder streets in Hong Kong were actually a British innovation. So we went with the arrival of the British from these fishing villages to a port city with outlying villages. And in that city, in the central area, indeed at Central, that subway station and neighborhood, we have these ladder streets. And they're streets with stairs that go to neighborhoods higher up, Uh, But we're not talking about as high as Victoria's Peak. We're talking about mid-level and Shuang Wan, which I'm probably mispronouncing. Shuang Wan is highly built up, lots of office buildings and businesses. And mid-level is an affluent area with lots of tall skyscraper buildings. But it's a very convenient place to live uh, due to public transportation. There's a botanic garden and parks and, and really nice views there. So as the British are, you know, building up these areas, and this is, you know, much earlier, right? Um, You have a need. How are you going to get up and down these hills easily? Now, there is an actual street named Ladder Street, but it's also a generic term for these different uh, uh, streets. It was probably one of the first ladder streets, probably built between 1841 and 1850, and it's um, centrally located and easy to find if you visit. And I'll read from the Wikipedia entry about ladder streets to give you an idea of how they were used in days gone by. Uh, And I quote, while some ladder streets are made only of traditional steps, some at moderate incline, have portions that could be traversed with a rickshaw or a cart. These portions had raised stones perpendicular to the street at regular intervals, acting like a ratchet so that carts and rickshaws could be easily stopped and parked. And this kind of paving can be found on Pottinger Street. So it reminds me of those stared streets we have um, today in many places um, with, that have grooves for walking with a bicycle. So uh, similar, the only difference I would say is that the laddered streets um, have much lower steps because they're meant to be something you could take uh, the equivalent of um, a wide bicycle tire or a wide kind of like... Uh, 
stroller tire on uh, without being blocked, without an obstacle. Uh, it is worth looking at the Wikipedia page for Hong Kong Ladder Streets because there's plenty of photos on that page. And that page, of course, is listed in our episode notes. And I have to say as well, they reminded me of a cross between um, uh, stared streets in Paris and in L.A. There's a very L.A. feel to them. Um, and I'm thinking of specifically of the steps at Angel's Flight in L.A. And in Pittsburgh, one can find such streets, but they have a whole different look. That would be for another episode. They have a whole different look and they're not as um, shallow. So back to our movie, uh, we have two people who are besotted and and committed to each other. This is not a relationship that develops over time in terms of becoming committed. They really, uh, they really have a connection pretty quickly. So, however, you know, you're probably thinking, oh, they're, they're moving in together already, whatever. No, with the careers and customs of China uh, at the time and generally in the 1950s and 1950s British society, there are not sleepovers. Mark is not moving in or staying at Suyin's room. She lives at the hospital in kind of a, it's not really a dormitory, but it's, but the her small apartment, her room is on the hospital. It's it's in a hospital. Uh, it's in the hospital building, so she can't be seen with him like sneaking out early in the morning. Plus, there's her daughter, although she seems always to be away with playmates or family friends. Um, and even though the book, I have to say, it's a very minor part. It's not. It's not like. Uh, She's always around, although you do get the feeling, certainly in the book, a little in the movie, that, that the daughter develops a very nice relationship with Mark. So Suyin, though, even though uh, Mark is not moving in or sleeping over, she's already had her reputation affected just by hanging around um, with him. He's seen a lot at the hospital waiting for her, you know, at the end of her work day. And uh, she's really presented... Um, with a choice. She can be a respectable woman and um, in society alone, but she cannot be that respectable woman and stay with Mark because he is legally married. Um, he is often away or on assignment or he does go back um, to where his family is, but she's the one who's uh, judged, and she is the one whose prospects in life and her career ambitions will be affected. So for Su Yin, as a widow with a cultural Chinese cultural heritage, even though she's half uh, European, her mother was European and half Chinese. She's very much culturally Chinese, and she's not supposed to remarry at all, let alone to have an affair. So this is like a whole rebranding in her mind of who she is, to use a modern term. Uh, but neither marriage nor widowhood nor career is going to keep these two apart. Um, like the lore of the beautiful cherry trees in bloom and early spring, even the knowledge that that magical bloom will soon be gone, doesn't keep us from being in their midst as much as possible. 
I would say this is true with Mark and Su Yin. The, it's very uncertain that this relationship can have a future, and yet they are going to enjoy it. And enjoy maybe isn't right, really the right word, but be immersed with each other and serious with each other however they can in whatever time they have. We see Su Yin and Mark in a very chaste 1950s bathing suits alone on a beach at Repulse Bay and then swimming across the clean water to a friend's house that is gorgeous mid-century modern with a to-die-for patio overlooking the bay. And there is still a beach at Repulse Bay. It's a wealthy district with skyscraper condos and luxury swimming pools. Uh, There's some posh private schools not too far away. And to use the subway, it would take about an hour to reach this beach from uh, 41A Conduit Road, where the hospital was supposed to be located, Um, or anywhere from 20 to 40 minutes by car assuming one wouldn't get stuck in uh, traffic. And, of course, uh, owning a car or hiring a taxi taxi would be a much pricier option than taking the subway. Um, And I can only imagine what it's like to be driving around a lot there. It's so congested. The subway is a much way to to go. So we're talking across the island, and of course we don't see our lovebirds frustrated in traffic, even though as the crow flies, Repulse Bay is near a a school where a friend of mine used to teach. It takes a half hour by public transportation because of the ups and downs of the hills of Hong Kong. Hong Kong is actually a pretty um, hilly and mountainous place. It's hard to appreciate it until you're there. I'll take a sip of my nice coffee now. And in a way that's very, very different than a place even like Seattle. Okay. Um, So our couple swims across the bay to the friend's house. Um, At the friend's house, they're, they're pretty open here, like that they're a couple, you know. It's... They're not, you know, it's not public displays of affection, but they're, they're together. And it's obvious, even though there's been no announcement, and it, it's also obvious that there's a serious relationship. So at the soiree, questions po- pop up about the safety of Hong Kong with the communists taking over China. Um, music comes on, they dance on this gorgeous patio with this view of the bay, and um, Mark and Su Yin take uh, a taxi boat back, it appears, to the spot where they left their stuff. I can't even imagine, okay? So there are beaches in Hong Kong and, and sort of these small fishing village areas, but I can't imagine just leaving your stuff there for like three hours, even today. I mean, I, there's nowhere I went in Hong Kong where I have to say you felt... Um, that there was just nobody around. I mean, it was kind of, anyway, maybe that's just my New York City upbringing. I can't imagine, you know, just leaving your stuff in a public space for hours and expecting it to still be there. Um, he's, he tells her he thinks he's in love with her, and she's only been with her late husband. And she says she doesn't really want to get involved, even though it's obvious they're already involved. But they're already entwined. And, and nothing... 
that happens physically is going to alter that. It's as if the physical stuff for them is... It comes after. It comes after the emotional attachment. It's all pretty chaste at this point, yet intimate. Uh, but soon thereafter that evening, they do kiss. Um, so we're almost like seeing this very intimate relationship play out before they become involved, which is quite different from most modern movies. Anyway, that's a whole other discussion. Uh, we now shift to Su Yin's trip to China, to Chongqing, which is on the cusp at this point of being taken over by the communists. Uh, she goes to see her family. We don't see too much in the movie, and we certainly don't see anything of Chongqing. We go straight to the family. Um, but the book really focuses on Su Yin's travels, her descriptions of the communist advance, the culture that will soon fall, the corruption of the nationalists, as well as the intricacies of her family situation. In both uh, version. She handles the details of her sister's position and her sister's wish to leave China as soon as possible before the communists arrive in Chongqing. Her, her sister is pretty desperate. In the movie, Mark shows up in Chongqing at the family home, and Su Yin requests permission to marry him, and one can see how much courage it would take um, to ask permission to marry a Westerner when here Su Yin is, knows that the traditional expectation is that she'll remain a widow, and her elders have already praised her for this, for being this model widow. But ultimately, the uncle, who is the patriarch, grants permission, and it's not warm and fuzzy, this welcome. Uh, it's, it's rather stiff. In the movie, Sun Yin and Mark fly back to Chongqing, about 900 miles, and one can still fly today. It takes about two and a half hours. There are train options, which are 8.5 hours for the high-speed option, or starting at 10 hours uh, otherwise, and to drive would mean a 14-hour commitment, approximately, uh, which is different than you take... Amtrak here, certainly almost always, unless you're on the Northeast Corridor, you're pretty much talking it's going to take longer to take the train. I still love it, but not everyone does. But the Chinese have really uh, invested well in their trains, and that will be definitely another topic. Okay, so throughout the movie, the word divorce is never mentioned, but the concept of the ending, an official ending for Mark's marriage is discussed. At this point, Su Yin and Mark are committed. Um, although he's not divorced, he has asked her to marry him and his marital status, whether his wife will allow a divorce or, or not, is immaterial to Su Yin. She's with him no matter what. Uh, Mark flies to Singapore to speak to his wife. Um, this is the 1950s and 1950s divorce laws, uh, whether in the U.S. or Britain. Um, it, would be, it would have been pretty much impossible for Mark to have gotten a divorce without the agreement of his wife. Um, so the grounds for divorce were narrow, and there were solid reasons why a wife would prefer to stay in a marriage and not divorce, even if the relationship with her husband were effectively over. There's social status, there's money issues, uh, there's a certain stability. So 
I, I would say that there were, in some ways, there was more of an incentive for the wife to say no to the divorce. So going from Hong Kong to Singapore today without layovers, a flight would be three to four hours, but we all know that reasonably priced options would mean at least one layover and many more hours. Um, One does have the option to go to Macau first and then hop a ferry, which would take almost eight hours. If you were to do this route, the the ferry takes only an hour, but then, uh, you know, switching flights, all that. Or you can drive, and that would take about two days uh, to go to Singapore. Train travel would require several transfers, and the bus seems like a nightmare. Um, Although I personally have done my share of long-distance overnight bus trips. Uh, It is possible, but it's it's probably cheaper. (laughs) But it's, it's long. So let's return to the movie, and we want to get to the history of public transport in Hong Kong. So... We're again at the friend's house with that view of Repulse Bay, and Suyin is told by her old friend, whom she had run into at that restaurant, um, and others, that she shouldn't expect Mark's wife to agree to do a divorce. And, in fact, although the wife does initially agree, she reneges. And Mark informs Suyin when she meets him at the airport, indeed out off the runway. Uh, the passengers disembarking, yes, down those steps, and then they, they walk to the uh, terminal, as, as we used to. Although, as I did this summer, even in Europe, which I couldn't believe at a major airport, even with a big flight. Okay, um, so even before they get, you know, into the terminal, she knows. There's a character in the movie, Mrs. Palmer Jones, who represents the quintessential clueless British socialite, um, and whose husband, by the way, is having an affair with that old school friend. She tells Suyin, this socialite, uh, that her employment at the hospital is at risk due to her widely known relationship with Mark. Uh, Mark tells Su Yin he must go to Macau on assignment, and this is a short trip. It takes an hour by ferry, and those ferries run every 15 minutes. They go out to dinner. They dance. Um, oh, I forgot one thing. Uh, they meet some people in the elevator, some generals, whom she knew in China, nationalist generals. And they don't speak to her. She doesn't speak to them. And she explains to Mark afterward that because she's with a foreigner, she shouldn't. She, it's, it's considered unacceptable to engage in conversation. They go to dinner, they go to a fortune teller who predicts a nice life together, uh, and Mark receives a cable ordering him to return to Hong Kong to depart for Korea on assignment. And he thinks this will keep him away for two to three weeks. So they leave for Hong Kong, they visit, they have a hillside spot, which I have neglected to tell you about because those parts of the movie were filmed in California, but it's supposed to represent their private meeting place. It's out in the open, it's on a hillside, there doesn't look like they're doing the deed or anything but it's their place for where they know they can be alone so before we go further to discuss the end of the movie I'm going to talk about the history of public transport and the MTR subway network on Hong Kong 
and that will take up uh, most of the second episode. But we will introduce now uh, the history of public transport as it started. So before, you know, I get to how it started, where, what, I just want to tell you that public transportation, it's the gold standard in Hong Kong. It puts anything in the U.S. to shame, even New York City's transit system. I would say that due to its modern advantages in terms of station design, lighting, and wayfinding, Hong Kong's subway is better than London's, but without the charm. Um, but remember that London subway uh, dates back to 1866, and Boston and New York subway systems were started uh, around the turn of the 20th century, so they're much older than Hong Kong. And keep these facts in mind when hearing about Hong Kong, because, you know, we're talking about in 1866, Hong Kong's a colonial port. It is nowhere near being a sophisticated city. And remember, it gets populated quite quickly, 500,000 in 1900, still far below the millions of today, but still explosive growth. Um, and so, it, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to build a viable transportation network when uh, there's such monumental changes going on in real time in terms of population. So that, as that base layer, I, I will go to talking about the beginnings of public transportation on Hong Kong. Hong Kong's first public transit was the Peak Tramway, which is actually a funicular and mentioned in our episode about funiculars. That's episode two. The Peak Tramway has been in operation since 1888, though its cars and machinery are state-of-the-art today. The tramway goes up a very steep mountain to the wealthy neighborhood of Victoria's Peak and to the modern uh, tourist viewing area. And that funicular is a must-do for anyone who visits Hong Kong. If you see amazing views at the top, um, but the ride and the greenery and the uh, views of the neighborhoods one sees along the way are well worth the time. I admit that there was basically no line when I visited. I visited very much outside of tourist season, but I would say there's probably usually a long line if there's any tourists. And there is a way for residents to cut the line or have their own, they have their own line because obviously that would be very irritating. <laughs> so, one Alexander, okay, we're not going to butcher this, this name. Alexander Findlay Smith, how's that for a British sounding name, uh, began planning for some mode of transportation uh, to take people from the lower town in 1881 all the way up to the peak. And Findlay Smith, uh, here, need a little coffee first. Finley Smith, in order to uh, determine what is the best mode and how to construct whatever mode he's going to select, he goes and he travels. He studies in Europe and in the U.S. 
uh, looking to see what the options are. And he chooses, as we know, a funicular. Construction began in September 1885 and lasted about two and a half years with the tramway opening in May of 1888. A steam engine was uh, used at the start and Finley Smith's partner lived next door to the terminal at the top. An edifice later converted it into a hotel. So if you were imagining like, like a little lighthouse, you know, two room kind of thing, no. <laughs> This was pretty cushy, cushy uh, home. So though the technology was completely modern for its time, the construction of the tramway was essentially an ancient process built on the backs of laborers hauling materials up the mountain to whatever point where the materials or machinery were needed. And we're talking steep and long here, okay? This is an impressive tramway. This is no short thing. So, originally, passengers were divided into three classes. Uh, at the top and first class were British colonial officials and residents of Victoria Peak, which was a very wealthy enclave. Second class was designated for police and military. And guess who was third class? The vast majority of native Hong Kong residents uh, who were only permitted to ride, right, in the lowest. So you're there, right, for generations and generations, and then you're dissed. There's a reason why people don't like to be colonized. Okay, so this class system did not survive even to the end of British control. Pre-COVID, Four million people a year were riding the peak tramway. Uh, there's more about this, and this could be an episode on its own if you would wanted to just look at the tramway. Next came buses, which debuted in the early 1900s. And I have to say, uh, I looked into it. There's really not much detail when you're looking into the uh, beginning of the bus system in Hong Kong. The first bus companies, ones with established routes, um, and that was passengers sitting on wooden benches, began operation in 1921. And in 1933, uh, exclusive franchises were granted, one for a company to operate in Kowloon and the other for operation on Hong Kong Island. So we have buses, informal, uh, think Africa, cities in Africa have that, um, uh, but much more formalized, you know, in the 20s and 30s. So, as I said, think of New York City's five boroughs here. Uh, Hong Kong is not just the city center island that's somewhat analogous to Manhattan. If one would compare the city roughly to Hong Kong, I would say Kowloon is sort of like the Bronx because it's part of the mainland, but there are other islands and Kowloon is very built up, certainly much more than the Bronx, and there's a lot of stuff there, so it's not not a total, not the closest of analogies. Again, there's much more history on those Hong Kong buses. Let's just say that at the close of World War II, there's hundreds of thousands of people here, and there's two bus routes in operation. This is not going to do. The British military sent converted trucks to substitute for a while, right? You can use a converted truck as a bus. 
Uh, with the huge population boom going into the 50s came double-decker buses. Yes, there is more. Um, there were riots in 1967 against the British occupation, which is somewhat interesting because the British seem a whole lot better than the Chinese in many ways, but that's a whole different story, and uh, maybe I'm not looking at it correctly. But but there was, you know, there was a, a, a desire for... Um, self-determination. They have these riots against the British, and there's violence against bus drivers who refuse to strike. Uh, violence against them, and uh, buses were burned. A minibus mode sprang up to serve the demand, and it took years for uh, bus service to fully rebound. And we're going to leave it there, uh, because we're going to go whole hog in our next episode into the Hong Kong's amazing subway system, and then we'll chat about the ending of Love is a Many Splendored Thing. Thank you so much for listening today. Again, I'm your host, Cheryl Gross-Glazer from us at Altered Mobility to You. It's been a pleasure. Contribute your thoughts on social media and get links to the resources on the, in the episode notes. Have a fabulous couple of weeks until we meet again. Uh, get out. Enjoy that pedestrian experience. Go ride a bike and take a ride on transit. Oh